Book Four, Sections Twenty Four through Twenty Six of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Four: The Will of King Cole, Section Twenty Four. Bidding Mrs. Swatchka farewell, Hal set out for the railroad station. But before he had gone a block from the hotel, he ran into his brother, coming straight towards him. Edward's face wore a bored look. His very manner of carrying the magazine under his arm said that he had selected it in a last hopeless effort against the monotony of Pedro. Such a trick of fate, to take a man of important affairs and immure him at the mercy of a maniac in a godforsaken coal town. What did people do in such a hole? Pay a nickel to look at moving pictures of cowboys and counterfeiters? Edward's aspect was too much for Hal's sense of humor. Besides, he had a good excuse. Was it not proper to make a test of his disguise before facing the real danger in North Valley? He placed himself in the path of his brother's progress, and in Mrs. Zamboni's high, complaining tones began, Mister? Edward stared at the interrupting black figure. Mister, you Joe Smith's brother, hey? The question had to be repeated before Edward gave his grudging answer. He was not proud of the relationship. Mister, continued the whining voice, my old man got blow up in mine. I get five pieces from my man what I got to bury yesterday in graveyard. I got to pay thirty dollar for bury them pieces, and I don't got no more money left. I don't got no money from them company fellers. They come lawyer feller, and he say maybe I get money for bury my man if I don't jay too much. But, mister, I got eleven children I got to feed, and I don't got no more man and I don't find no new man for old woman like me. When I go home I hear them children crying, and I don't got no food, and them company stores don't give me no food. I think maybe you, Joe Smith's brother, you good man. Maybe you sorry for poor widow woman. You maybe give me some money, mister, so I buy some food for them children. All right, said Edward. He pulled out his wallet and extracted a bill, which happened to be for ten dollars. His manner seemed to say, For heaven's sake, here! Mrs. Zamboni clutched the bill with greedy fingers, but was not appeased. You got plenty money, mister! You rich man, hey? You maybe give me all them monies, so I got plenty feed them children? You don't know them company stores, mister. Them prices is way up high like mountains. Them children is hungry. They cry all day and night, and one piece money don't last so long. You give me some more piece monies, mister, hey? I'll give you one more, said Edward. I need some for myself. He pulled off another bill. What you need so much, mister? You don't got so many children, hey? And you got plenty more money home, maybe? That's all I can give you, said the man. He took a step to one side, to get round the obstruction in his path. But the obstruction took a step also, 
and with surprising agility. "'Mister, I thank you for them monies. I tell them children I get monies from good man. I like you, Mr. Smith. You give money for poor widow woman. You nice man.' And the dreadful creature actually stuck out one of her paws, as if expecting to pat Edward on the cheek, or to chuck him under the chin. He recoiled, as from a contagion, but she followed him, determined to do something to him he could not be sure what. He had heard that these foreigners had strange customs. "'It's all right. It's nothing,' he insisted, and fell back, at the same time glancing nervously about, to see if there were spectators of this scene. "'Nice man, mister! Nice man!' cried the old woman, with increasing cordiality. Maybe some day I find man like you, Mr. Edward Smith, so I don't stay widow woman no more. You think maybe you like to marry nice slavish woman, got plenty nice children? Edward, perceiving that the matter was getting desperate, sprang to one side. It was a spring which should have carried him to safety, but to his dismay the slavish widow sprang also. Her claws caught him under the armpit, and fastening in his ribs gave him a ferocious pinch, after which the owner of the claws went down the street, not looking back, but making strange gobbling noises, which might have been the weeping of a bereaved widow in Slavish, or might have been almost anything else. End of section 24 Section 25 the train up to North Valley left very soon, and Hal figured that there would be just time to accomplish his errand and catch the last train back. He took his seat in the car without attracting attention, and sat in his place until they were approaching their destination, the last stop up the canyon. There were several of the miners' women in the car, and Hal picked out one who belonged to Mrs. Zamboni's nationality and moved over beside her. She made place, with some remark, but Hal merely sobbed softly, and the woman felt for his hand to comfort him. As his hands were clasped together under the veils, she patted him reassuringly on the knee. At the boundary of the stockaded village the train stopped, and Bud Adams came through the car, scrutinizing every passenger. Seeing this, Hal began to sob again, and murmured something indistinct to his companion, which caused her to lean towards him, speaking volubly in her native language. Bud passed by. When Hal came to leave the train, he took his companion's arm. He sobbed some more, and she talked some more, and so they went down the platform, under the very eyes of Pete Hannon, the breaker of teeth. Another woman joined them, and they walked down the street, the women conversing in Slavish, apparently without a suspicion of how. He had worked out his plan of action. He would not try to talk with the men secretly, it would take too long, and he might be betrayed before he had talked with a sufficient number. One bold stroke was the thing. In half an hour it would be supper-time, 
and the feeders would gather in Reminitsky's dining-room. He would give his message there. Hal's two companions were puzzled that he passed the Zamboni cabin, where presumably the Zamboni brood were being cared for by neighbors. But he let them make what they could of this, and went on to the Minetti home. To the astonished Rosa he revealed himself, and gave her husband's message, that she should take herself and the children down to Pedro, and wait quietly until she heard from him. She hurried out and brought in Jack David, to whom Hal explained matters. Big Jack's part in the recent disturbance had apparently not been suspected. He and his wife, with Rovetta, Resmok, and Klowoski, would remain as a nucleus through which the Union could work upon the men. The supper hour was at hand, and the pseudo-Mrs. Zamboni emerged and toddled down the street. As she passed into the dining-room of the boarding-house, men looked at her, but no one spoke. It was the stage of the meal where everybody was grabbing and devouring, in the effort to get the best of his grabbing and devouring neighbors. The black-clad figure went to the far end of the room. There was a vacant chair, and the figure pulled it back from the table and climbed upon it. Then a shout rang through the room. "'Boys! Boys!' The feeders looked up, and saw the widow's weeds thrown back, and their leader, Joe Smith, gazing out at them. "'Boys, I've come with a message from the Union!' There was a yell. Men leaped to their feet. Chairs were flung back, falling with a crash to the floor. Then, almost instantly, came silence. You could have heard the movement of any man's jaws, had any man continued to move them. "'Boys, I've been down to Pedro and seen the Union people. I knew the bosses wouldn't let me come back, so I dressed up, and here I am.' It dawned upon them, the meaning of this fantastic costume. There were cheers, laughter, yells of delight. But Hal stretched out his hands, and silence fell again. "'Listen to me. The bosses won't let me talk long, and I've something important to say.' The union leaders say we can't win a strike now. Consternation came into the faces before him. There were cries of dismay. He went on. We are only one camp, and the bosses would turn us out. They'd get in scabs and run the mines without us. What we must have is a strike of all the camps at once. One big union and one big strike. If we walked out now, it would please the bosses. But we'll fool them. We'll keep our jobs and keep our union, too. You are members of the union. You'll go on working for the union. Hooray for the North Valley Union! For a moment there was no response. It was hard for men to cheer over such a prospect. Hal saw that he must touch a different chord. We mustn't be cowards, boys. We've got to keep our nerve. I'm doing my part. It took nerve to get in here, in Mrs. Zamboni's clothes, and with two pillows stuffed in front of me. He thumped the pillows, and there was a burst of laughter. Many in the crowd knew Mrs. Zamboni. It was what comedians call a 
local gag. The laughter spread and became a gale of merriment. Men began to cheer. Hurrah for Joe! You're the girl! Will you marry me, Joe? And so, of course, it was easy for Hal to get a response when he shouted, Hurrah for the North Valley Union! Again he raised his hands for silence and went on again. Listen, men, they'll turn me out, and you're not going to resist them. You're going to work and keep your jobs and get ready for the big strike. And you'll tell the other men what I say. I can't talk to them all, but you tell them about the union. Remember, there are people outside planning and fighting for you. We're going to stand by the union, all of us, till we've brought these coal camps back into America. There was a cheer that shook the walls of the room. Yes, that was what they wanted, to live in America. A crowd of men had gathered in the doorway, attracted by the uproar. Hal noticed confusion and pushing, and saw the head and burly shoulders of his enemy, Pete Hannon, come into sight. "'Here come the gunmen, boys!' he cried, and there was a roar of anger from the crowd. Men turned, clenching their fists, glaring at the guard. But Hal rushed on quickly. "'Boys, hear what I say. Keep your heads. I can't stay in North Valley, and you know it. But I've done the thing I came to do. I've brought you the message from the Union. And you'll tell the other men. Tell them to stand by the Union.' Hal went on, repeating his message over and over. Looking from one to another of these toil-worn faces, he remembered the pledge he had made them, and he made it anew. "'I'm going to stand by you. I'm going on with the fight, boys.' There came more disturbance at the door, and suddenly Jeff Cotton appeared, with a couple of additional guards, shoving their way into the room, breathless and red in the face from running. "'Ah, there's the marshal,' cried Hal. You needn't push, Cotton. There's not going to be any trouble. We are union men here. We know how to control ourselves. Now, boys, we're not giving up. We're not beaten. We're only waiting for the men in the other camps. We have a union, and we mean to keep it. Three cheers for the union! The cheers rang out with a will. Cheers for the union, cheers for Joe Smith, cheers for the widow and her weeds. You belong to the Union. You stand by it, no matter what happens. If they fire you, you take it on to the next place. You teach it to the new men. You never let it die in your hearts. In Union there is strength. In Union there is hope. Never forget it, men. Union! The voice of the camp marshal rang out. If you're coming, young woman, come now. Hal dropped a shy curtsy. "'Oh, Mr. Cotton, this is so sudden!' The crowd howled, and Hal descended from his platform. With coquettish gesturing, he replaced the widow's veils about his face and tripped mincingly across the dining-room. When he reached the camp-marshal, he daintily took that worthy's arm, and with the breaker of teeth on the other side, and Bud Adams bringing up the rear, he toddled out of the dining-room and down the street. 
Hungry men gave up their suppers to behold that sight. They poured out of the building. They followed, laughing, shouting, jeering. Others came from every direction. By the time the party had reached the depot, a good part of the population of the village was on hand, and everywhere went the word, "'It's Joe Smith! Come back with a message from the Union!' Big, coal-grimed miners laughed till the tears made streaks on their faces. They fell on one another's necks for delight at this trick which had been played upon their oppressors. Even Jeff Cotton could not withhold his tribute. "'By God, you're the limit!' he muttered. He accepted the tea-party aspect of the affair as the easiest way to get rid of his recurrent guest and avert the possibilities of danger. He escorted the widow to the train and helped her up the steps, posting escorts at the doors of her car, nor did the attentions of these gallants cease until the train had moved down the canyon and passed the limits of the North Valley stockade. End of section 25 Section 26 Hal took off his widow's weeds, and with them he shed the merriment he had worn for the benefit of the men. There came a sudden reaction. He realized that he was tired. For ten days he had lived in a whirl of excitement, scarcely stopping to sleep. Now he lay back in the car seat, pale, exhausted, his head ached, and he realized that the sum total of his North Valley experience was failure. There was left in him no trace of that spirit of adventure with which he had set out upon his summer course in practical sociology. He had studied his lessons, tried to recite them, and been flunked. He smiled a bitter smile, recollecting the careless jesting that had been on his lips as he came up that same canyon. He keeps them a roll, that merry old soul, the wheels of industry. A roll and a roll for his pipe and his bowl and his college faculty. The train arrived in Pedro, and Hal took a hack at the station and drove to the hotel. He still carried the widow's weeds rolled into a bundle. He might have left them in the train, but the impulse to economy which he had acquired during the last ten weeks had become a habit. He would return them to Mrs. Zamboni. The money he had promised her might better be used to feed her young ones. The two pillows he would leave in the car. The hotel might endure the loss. Entering the lobby, the first person Hal saw was his brother and the sight of that patrician face made human by disgust relieved Hal's headache in part. Life was harsh, life was cruel, but here was weary, waiting Edward, that boon of comic relief. Edward demanded to know where the devil he had been, and Hal answered, "'I've been visiting the widows and orphans.' "'Oh,' said Edward, "'and while I sit in this hole and stew,' What's that you've got under your arm? Hal looked at the bundle. It's a souvenir of one of the widows, he said, 
and unrolled the garments and spread them out before his brother's puzzled eyes. A lady named Mrs. Swajka gave them to me. They belonged to another lady, Mrs. Zamboni, but she doesn't need them any more. What have you got to do with them? It seems that Mrs. Zamboni is going to get married again. Hal lowered his voice confidentially. It's a romance, Edward. It may interest you as an illustration of the manners of these foreign races. She met a man on the street, a fine, fine man, she says, and he gave her a lot of money. So she went and bought herself some new clothes, and she wants to give these widow's weeds to the new man. That's the custom in her country, it seems, her sign that she accepts him as a suitor. Seeing the look of wonderment growing on his brother's face, Hal had to stop for a moment to keep his own face straight. "'If that man wasn't serious in his intention, Edward, he'll have trouble, for I know Mrs. Zamboni's emotional nature. She'll follow him about everywhere.' "'Hal, that creature is insane!' And Edward looked about him nervously, as if he thought the Slavish widow might appear suddenly in the hotel lobby to demonstrate her emotional nature. "'No,' replied Hal. "'It's just one of those differences in national customs.' And suddenly Hal's face gave way. He began to laugh. He laughed, perhaps more loudly than good form permitted. Edward was much annoyed. There were people in the lobby, and they were staring at him. "'Cut it out, Hal!' he exclaimed. "'Your fool jokes bore me!' But nevertheless Hal could see uncertainty in his brother's face. Edward recognized those widow's weeds, and how could he be sure about the national customs of that grotesque creature who had pinched him in the ribs on the street? "'Cut it out!' he cried again. Hal, changing his voice suddenly to the Zamboni key, exclaimed, "'Mister, I got eight children I got to feed, and I don't got no more man, and I don't find no new man for old woman like me.' So at last the truth in its full enormity began to dawn upon Edward. His consternation and disgust poured themselves out, and Hal listened, his laughter dying. "'Edward,' he said, "'you don't take me seriously, even yet.' "'Good God!' cried the other. "'I believe you're really insane.' "'You were up there, Edward. "'You heard what I said to those poor devils, "'and you actually thought I'd go off with you "'and forget about them?' "'Edward ignored this. "'You're really insane,' he repeated. "'You'll get yourself killed in spite of all I can do.' But Hal only laughed. Not a chance of it. You should have seen the tea-party manners of the camp marshal. End of section 26